0: This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com, A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Ben Perharan from Creative Strategies and opinions on the October surprises that emerged from Google, Microsoft, and Apple, and discuss their road ahead with their different philosophies in different products, and the impact to Asian OEMs. Hi, Ben. Hey, Bernard. How are you? I'm good, back in Singapore. How are you doing? Not too bad. Enjoyed having you out here for a few months. And I'm talking to Ben Beharin from Creative Strategies and TechPinions. Since we last spoke in Starbucks Cafe in Mountain View, what have you been up to? Well, you know,
1: keeping up the grind. The fall is a busy time because not only are there a lot of events for companies kind of leading into the the holiday pipeline for consumer electronics buying, but a lot of our clients start the, you know, planning and thinking for next year. So we get a lot of queries to kind of come in and and share research and We've done like three studies this fall also, which is the most I've ever done in a period of two months. So we're not just drowning in data, but a lot of people sort of inquiries for outlook and planning for next year. So it's it's a busy cycle. But after November, I'll get a little
0: bit of a break and maybe I'll sleep some then. And then you basically have Thanksgiving and Christmas (laughs) and then you get into the next year, which is going to be much more busy now because summer is going to be more busy with Asian companies declaring their new acquisitions as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, every year is honestly getting busier. You know, for those of us that have to do the the Consumer Electronic Show in Vegas in January, beat. You know, it's it's pretty much the worst thing ever to go from Christmas and then you know a week and a half later you've got the the worst show that we all attend from a difficulty standpoint. It's like a it's like a hell week way to start off the year. But I mean, every year is getting busier. And obviously, as the global companies start to become more influential and more involved in tech, it's almost
0: like there's really no period of breaks anymore. But you sit in the heart of Silicon Valley. I wanted to get you here. And this time we're going to break this into two parts. The first is the October surprise, which I'm basically referring to Google, Microsoft and Apple, since this is not <laughs> right. the US elections. Three events have happened over the whole month of October for Google, Microsoft, and Apple. Can you summarize the major announcements coming from each one of them and their implications in a broader context? I think we will start off with Google first, with the Pixel and the Home.
1: Yeah, you know, I think we knew, you know, Google was was signaling their intent to be more aggressive with first-party hardware. You know, I think it was pretty clear that there was a phone in the works you know, I mean, all the evidence pointed that they would sort of go after the high end, and then there was, you know, from Google I/O, we we learned about the home, and, and it's it's interesting because Google is a fascinating company, you know, from a strategic standpoint because they've got the philosophy that they're they're really a reach company, so essentially they they need to try to be in front of as many eyeballs as possible, right? Very very similar to Facebook in that they they really depend on scale, and you know, one of the things that I think threw a lot of people for a loop with their October announcement was that they were they made 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 some hints that some of the things they would do in AI would sort of be exclusive to Google Hardware, which which you then sort of look and say, okay well that that's not really a reach strategy because you know unquestionably you will not sell one of these to you know nearly as many people as you could if you had partners helping sell sell hardware on your platform. So so there's a little bit of nuance as to you know kind of what Google's doing, particularly around artificial intelligence that's unique to their hardware versus what they'll enable others to do. And so there's still some sort of controversy around that but but that was an interesting quasi diversion from some of the things that they've been doing because you know again when you when you look at Google's business it makes sense that they anything they make whether it's you know assistant which is exclusive to Pixel at first although we're pretty confident it'll come to other OEMs in some some shape or form or even the stuff that's going on with home and it's sort of unclear how many other third-party smart home companies will get access to, you know, Google Assistant on other hardware? So it's just, it's interesting to see them kind of take a a more these sorts of things are exclusive. When again, that's really not beneficial to their business model. So there there might be some some changing tactics within Google. You know, I think the the Pixel is interesting. It, it's the first step of many. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I mean, I think you can really do an incredibly similar analysis to why. Google believes they need to be in smartphones to the same reasons why Microsoft needs believes that they need to be in in PCs. Both those companies targeting the high end, which we know, you know, Apple is the only other company in 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 many different categories, not just phones, but that sells sells exclusively into the high end. And so it, it makes sense why both Microsoft and Google believe that. But again, Google's sort of first product here is 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 really actually not all of that interesting from an innovations point of view. And I and I do wonder, and I think it will get better. Over time, but I know a lot of people, you know, and I've spent some time with one are a little bit less impressed with the hardware and and the software. So I would say that's sort of step one of a very long road for them. But strategically, it makes sense for them to be in the space that they're being, particularly again, right? There's really only one high-end Android vendor, and that's and that Samsung. And and I guess there's some, there's still some questions around what samsung's long-term outlook is after the the note 7 debacle so it makes sense that google's trying to go on and get a share of that and, you know and honestly i mean the margins that they're getting that product if they sell 10 to 15 million a year they're going to make really good money from that hardware so it's it's a good business to kind of lump on their overall ad business but like i said the interesting thing is looking at what they might keep exclusive to themselves to try to really milk the the cream of the crop from the high end in Android versus what's that's very quite contrary to their business model, which is they just need to be on as many devices as possible with things that they want reach from. And so it's unclear whether, whether they go there with, with AI and how deep down the, the trail of, of a modular platform they do with the AI. But right now
0: they're starting off with a bit of this stuff exclusive to their hardware. Then what about Microsoft with the announcements in the high-end PC side with the Microsoft Studio then?
1: Yeah, I mean, Microsoft's doing really interesting stuff with Surface. You know, again, like I said, the analysis is quite similar as to why they're in high-end PCs as to why, you know, Android is. And, and again, right, a lot of it just comes from, if you look at the landscape of the partners that both those companies have, you know, most of them really aren't pushing the, the ball forward in terms of innovation. I mean, I think Samsung's doing some interesting things in mobile, but other than that, you got nobody in mobile. You look over in in Windows land and you say, okay, well, who's really pushing the envelope? With innovation for a category that's still, you know, over a billion people have a PC, and you know, arguably those who use those products use so, you know, do so for much longer periods of times than they do, you know, their smartphones and and tablets. So it's still something humans spend a lot of time on. So there's value in, you know, really still creating unique innovations that that help people use those machines and and get more out of them. And I think Microsoft was you know, really just frustrated with what, you know, their their partners were doing and, and not pushing the envelope. And again, saw a good revenue opportunity in the high end. That's where Surface stays. It's it's really, it's not trying to compete with the mid-range of the PCs where all the volume is in terms of price. It's really just targeting the high end. And, and because of that, they're really building a product for a very specific type of a person. And, and that's what you're seeing, you know, with the Surface strategy, right? The Surface studio with its dial and its pen and and how it folds down to the table to basically have the same angle as the drawing board It is clearly targeting somebody for whom that's an important workflow and somebody who has that work is going to be willing to pay a premium because, again, for them, it's going to be all be about their productivity, their ability to get their job done and using this tool as a way to get things done better and more efficiently. You know, and I think it's a good looking machine and there's a lot of really good stuff that Microsoft's put behind that. I mean, they made some good additions to the Surface Book Pro or the Surface Book, and giving it more, quite a bit more GPU, for example, which is, again, something that that customer base demands. So, you know, I think, again, Microsoft makes a lot of sense, the things that they're doing. But again, you're you're seeing within both these categories that they're, they've both moved beyond a one-size-fits-all solution in hardware and software. And you're seeing kind of the PC Pi, similar to the Android Pi, is really beginning to sliver, into many many slices of that pie. And so Microsoft's just looking and saying, "Hey, we're going to go after this one segment of the entire PC space and we're going to, you know, do some unique innovations for this one segment and and really focus there." And that's a good strategy. And again, they're they're going to continue to make really good money from their Surface business. I think they're on pace to grow that business again in 2017, which is good. And so, you know, I think they're they're making really good strategic strides there and especially again in an area where most of their partners don't want to go so there was a gap there for windows microsoft wants to fill it and what we're seeing with them from a strategic standpoint is the way that they're interpreting how to go after these more pro customers with unique
0: innovations and that's what we're seeing really holistically from the surface line which leads us to apple with the new macbook pro and the magic bar and also their tv app so they have been leading in this category so where do they stand in yeah i mean this one's
1: it's obviously really fascinating because we've really got a huge difference in philosophies <laughs> between, you know, Microsoft and Apple. You know, I won't spend so much time on on the history, but but I think if you look back at the reasons that Microsoft went touch on PCs, it was really reactionary to both tablets and to smartphones. You know, they did not have a product. That was dominating the touch landscape that was spurring all sorts of new touch based development, which is really where a lot of the exciting development was happening was on touch based computers, right? Not mouse and keyboard based computers. So I think, you know, looking back, it made a lot of sense why they did what they did, even though that may or may not have been really the best strategy from an input output mechanism or a workflow mechanism you know they made it work and it took a really long time and a tremendous amount of resources to rejigger windows into a touch huge issues with windows 8 got fixed and kind of you know, they learned from that and that was a a debacle on its own and now with with windows 10 they have a stable environment where touch actually works, it makes some sense, you know, you can use it in a couple of different contexts. But again, I think they, they landed in a spot out of a reaction to what was happening in the market. And now they're trying to build upon that for, you know, for the future. Apple, on the other hand, you know, is able to maintain a separation I've sort of been loosely calling this and I might write an article under the subject line that Apple's separation of of church and state church kind of being that like hardcore loyal few and state being kind of everybody else. I'm still working with that analogy, but but it might work. But the point is that they can maintain this separation that the way you use a Mac, the person who is your Everyday Mac user sits at a desk, sits with this machine at arm's length, does a lot of different complex workflows. And and for them, and actually a lot of those people do use external monitors. So for a lot of those people in the context in which they're using that machine, Apple's basically saying we still feel like there's value in a mouse and a keyboard for those contexts. But they're admitting with this touch bar that there is some value with touch in a traditional PC-based workflow. And and that part, I think, is really, really interesting, actually, because, you know, again, I I have five Windows touch-based machines and and I'll be getting a a Mac with a touch bar, you know, when it ships. I mean, we don't really know. Like, I think we need to do a true analysis of these workflows for people who, again, who are desk-based workers, who sit and do, do complex workflows with these machines and just really see... You know which one's better because honestly i, I mean i don't know right i mean I, I don't use windows for a lot of complex workflows with touch i still use mouse and keyboard with most of my windows engagements in the same way that i do with my mac but i do use touch for some things on windows machines like scrolling websites is convenient and there's there's a few things that are convenient and so i think again apple's admitting that there's some value in having touch and in having a screen that's sort of dynamic and programmable but their philosophy is you don't need to take your hands off of the keyboard over onto the screen to do that task, right, that it's kind of right above your keyboard. And so therefore, you don't have to move your hands, right. And so this is this is just, again, I think, a very different philosophy. And, you know, and again, it's new. I I mean, I spent some time with it at the event. There's some things where it makes a ton of sense. There's some things like tabs and kind of images that they're showing, which I I couldn't quite grasp those use cases because they're so small and you kind of have to really bend over and kind of look at them. So we'll see what kind of new habits and what what new workflows get developed. But the bottom line is we're, we're seeing a schism in philosophies, in contextual compute for something that's a desk-based computer versus a mobile-based computer. And again, it's it's hard to say which one of those is better than the other yet. I think, again, if you're in Microsoft's camp, you're sort of just trusting that Microsoft's taking this direction and that you'll continue to see software based around touch-based workflows and mouse and keyboard workflows, giving you the best of all of those options with a piece of hardware. And then with Apple, you're sort of trusting that if you're a Mac user, that this philosophy is the right way forward. And and, and I think you'll need to see the Mac community and ourselves spend some time with those machines to see if that's right. But but it, it, again, I think it makes sense. Apple's logic and reasoning for doing this makes sense. They're going to need the, the software community to really embrace this touch bar for it to be super useful. That's, I think, the course of the next year will kind of be vetting, if you will, what the best contextual input and strategy for a form factor like the traditional PC is with this schism between the way Apple's doing it now and the way that Surface is. In fact, it, it's interesting, I, actually, if you break it down to a proposition of workflows that Microsoft is positioning. With Surface, for example, and many of their o- other OEMs who are jumping in and making touch-based machines as well, whether they be convertibles or, or two-in-ones, the same things that they're positioning as why you'd want those features is very similar to what Apple's doing with the iPad Pro. And so in my mind, I actually think it's more interesting to do the analysis and compare that Windows-based computers, PCs, actually compete more with the iPad Pro than they do with the Mac. And I think the Mac now, because it's not adopting touch-based workflows, pens, other types of hardware accessories like the iPad is, and like Surface and Windows products are, is kind of now an, a, a true island all by itself. There, there's there's actually nothing now kind of like it because it's again it's really hard. To find now, you know, at retail or anywhere, a a Windows based machine that doesn't have touch on it. And Microsoft and Intel are trying to push so much development around touch that you're just going to see that be integrated more into the experience. Whereas with with that, with Mac, you're not going to see any of that integrated. So you really actually have a product that's used to be. Very similar to PCs and is now sort of like on an island on its own in terms of workflow, whereas the the future around software based workflows that Intel and Microsoft and others want to push is actually much more similar to the direction that that Apple's taking with the iPad Pro. So I think it's interesting to kind of you used to think of Macs and PCs as competing. And now the direction you're going, you're kind of thinking, you know, PCs and, and iPad and iPad Pro is competing and I, and I think that's really interesting because that that sh- does change the vector of the analysis if we buy into that logic as I do and I think that really kind of changes some things when you think about the next co- the next few years now to the TV side you know this is really interesting Th- this again this shows how hard TV really is right and and I think one of the challenges with this is you know and, and one of my second startup actually was in the entertainment industry and so I spent a lot of time and learned some very painful lessons about that interest, that industry. And the probably the most glaring one from somebody coming from tech background is that that industry is really run by lawyers. And these archaic rights exist around contract for contract, you know, for for deals and and terms and, and legality that really stems back to an era in the 60s and 70s, not the modern era for contract rights. But those did not change. And so you you really have this this archaic structure for content IP and who has the rights and when that can be broadcast here versus mobile and on what screens. I mean, it's just a serious mess. And because of that, you have this pretty big schism is the way in which content can get distributed when there is so much rights and legality locked up around those rights. And so it's completely understandable why the content side has been one that's hard for Apple to get into. I think that's why they've sort of diverted from saying we're going to do a skinny bundle. I do think at some point in time, it makes sense for them to offer a skinny bundle, but not until all of these rights get resolved, meaning that all of our current providers can offer an unbundled skinny bundle, which would at some point be in time where rights have worked themselves out and we've got the ability to to subscribe to a content package and see that on all of our screens and not have gaps in what we can get like we do today. I think it makes sense at that point that, that Apple could do that because they've got the cash to pay the rights holders for the ability to distribute that bundle in the same way that that a number of cable monopolies would do so. So I think that makes sense. But right now they're they're basically trying to unbundle you from the content that you subscribe to and bring that all into one central location. And again, I think it's it's interesting that Netflix was missing from this and there's there's really good reasons why. For the same reasons that Amazon to some degree is missing from Apple TV and that these two companies – don't want to give up their customer relationship to Apple, whereas somebody like an NBC or HBO or all of the people who are contributing to the Apple TV app as an aggregator. And I kind of and, and use the analogy that this Apple TV app is basically a modern guide where it kind of surfaces and brings all of the content that you have from many different locations into one area, makes it quick for you to access, find and discover that content from sort of one central location, which is really what the EPG, the electronic guide, has been, even though those have been really, really bad UIs. Apple's trying to redo that, but also take into account kind of the modern era for apps and where content lives deep within apps. But Netflix, for example, is not there. And that's, again, that's because Netflix doesn't want to give that experience up, whereas someone like CBS doesn't care. They're like, I really don't care where my show shows up. I just want to make sure somebody sees it. I do think Netflix will get there, I think, Part of this is just them kind of going through what kind of a company they are. I mean, for them, again, right, reach is going to be critical. They're going to want that reach. And And if Apple can build a strong and large installed base of Apple TVs, then it becomes more attractive. I think right now. They probably don't see the pain point in needing to go there the same way that like a CBS or an HBO or local providers think that they need to be on on Apple TV. But if Apple had, you know, a couple hundred million of these out there, Netflix would have been their day one. I have no doubt. So that's kind of an evolving kind of narrative as to, okay, Apple's trying to kind of own the guide, own the TV experience. They're sort of not necessarily It doesn't matter where the content is, but that's that's going to be, you know, that's going to kind of rub a a Netflix and an Amazon the wrong way. But it is interesting. I think it's the right approach. I spent some time with that demo. It's actually really compelling, especially for news. I mean, again, if you pay and our country is different, I know, than the way things happen in in Europe and, and China to access this content. But in our country, you know, you've you've got this this pretty big gaping hole between, you know, what you can get for free ad supported versus what you have to pay for. And the bottom line is, if you want all of the content that most people want, you still have to pay somebody for that bundle. And so as long as again, you're paying for the content that you want from somebody's bundle, the Apple TV is doing a great job now of sort of bringing that in and including live content and sports and, and all of that stuff, right? But again, you're paying somebody, somebody for that. And so I think the exciting thing about Apple TV and, and really the future direction that this is sending for us as a as a consumer group in, in this shift is that you know we're seeing a world now that I think is incredibly encouraging that we're not stuck with the hardware or the set-top boxes that the cable companies decide to give us um, you know I sort of always use this analogy you know that that product that cable box and I, I'm a dish satellite subscriber is literally the worst piece of technology I have in my home by like exponential numbers. And so I don't I would I would love to not use it but I have to because of their infrastructure. Now that we're starting to see that change, as long as I pay Dish, I can start to access this content on other hardware because because they they just want to make sure that they get their money. They don't necessarily care about the set top box side. That starts to break some of these monopolistic things that have been going on in content in our country and I think that's exciting and I do think we're on a tipping point. Where we can, we can see the holistic change in how we consume this content over the internet, not just from a cable subscription, on all the devices that we have with us at any point in time. But we're still going to pay somebody for that content. So in my mind, the real question is, who am I paying? But I think I'll have many different options on how I
0: consume the content that I'm paying for. Just a quick question. Should Apple acquire Netflix then? I mean, this question has been examined by Ian Dawson first, and now Ben Thompson's rejiggling the question as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and, and Ben's point, with, which I completely agree with, is, you know, you, you, you need to be able to argue both sides, and he did that, right? He he took one stance where he said they should take Netflix, and then he he provided the counter-argument on, on why they don't. And I think that's actually an important skill set to apply to these things, because it, it really does, it, you really need to present both sides of the coin if, if you're going to present the argument. Why should they and why shouldn't they? You know, the thing that I Think you gotta remember about Netflix that I think a lot of people kind of miss is I'm not exactly sure what percent, but let's say everything but their original programming, every bit of of content that they get from a TV show series, from a provider, everything that's not originally produced, whatever percent that is, it's probably ninety percent, maybe more. Anybody can get that content if they pay for it. So Netflix has nothing unique but their original content. It's the same with Amazon. In fact, if you look at the libraries of content, they're very similar outside of the original content that Amazon has and Netflix has because just like in the days of digital music, the the studios will give the content that they've said it has the rights to be digital. They'll give it to anybody who pays for it. And so if Apple wanted, they could immediately create a version of Netflix of their own, that has all of the same back catalog of all of your favorite TV shows, exactly the same catalog that that Netflix has because those rights exists. All they do is pay for them. They have intentionally not done that for whatever reason. But if they felt like they needed to, they could have wiped Netflix out probably some time ago. Well, like I said, they've decided to not do that now. The original the interesting thing about Netflix is the original content because that's really at this point their lock-in. In fact, all of the studies that we see around driving new subscriptions to to Netflix, so all of their growth. Is actually predicated primarily on as a top two feature original content. So original content is what's fueling the growth. It's also the most expensive. It's the reason why they said we're gonna lose a bunch of money this quarter. We're gonna spend tens of billions of dollars trying to do this original content. And for Netflix, the hard part is that they're the only, this is their only business, right? Where Amazon is probably gonna spend similar amounts of money on original content. However, they have many other businesses that can fuel and offset. Any losses that they have, Netflix doesn't have that luxury. So you could make the point that Netflix could use somebody with a lot of capital, as my friend Ben Thompson does in, in his piece. So I think if you look at what they need to do versus what makes the most sense, it's hard to say that they couldn't do any of this immediately. They've got more customers than Netflix if they wanted to pay for the rights they could immediately provide a Netflix competitor day one minus any original content and we're not really seeing Apple prioritize original content and i think the only way that Netflix in my opinion would make sense is if they decided to keep it exclusive meaning the only way you get Netflix is on their hardware but they wouldn't do that right that's not the way that they would that they would approach this solution so you know i, I don't think they need to. I think they could have easily created their own if they wanted to. They made a decision not to do that, which tells me they'll probably not buy Netflix. But that being said, Netflix, I think, could use a large financial backer because, again, they they need the, the, the investment ecosystem to believe that where they're going is the right strategy. But they don't have the luxury of Amazon of having a really big, several, very big and very profitable businesses behind all the losses that they're going to incur in original content. So... Really interesting stories going on with Netflix. But like I said, I do think Netflix will, will work itself out and show up on the Apple
0: TV app at some point in time. I want to dial back to Google. So there have been a lot of different perspectives on Google's new approach with Pixel where they want to focus on a hardware strategy. But from their track record in buying Motorola and Nest, and then also shutting down some of their other old hardware initiatives, do you think their efforts in the Pixel series any different from the past like Nexus? Well,
1: you're absolutely right. I think their track records not not fantastic. This is you know a very different strategy than Nexus. I mean, they they really are owning the PNL. So so you're seeing Google decide make unilateral decisions on the hardware. They weren't necessarily doing that before. So this is sort of new strategy, new ground for them because they really do have a hardware unit. That's, again, very similar to Microsoft. It's an isolated group. They don't talk to those who are talking to their Android partners, so they won't really go system hardware wise. They're just unilaterally saying, here's our vision. We're deciding the screen, the optics, like we're going to focus on hardware innovations. We're going to decide the components. We're going to provide the entire solutions top to bottom and go to market with that product. So it's it's a very different strategy. You know, I, I think it's a little bit It's a little bit challenging for them because, I mean, to your points about, you know, what they did with Moda, what they did with others. I mean, and we and we spend some time, you know, with Google, but but not as much because for whatever reason, they don't love us analysts as much as they love the press. But I'm not convinced that they truly understand what's happening in the market and they can create all these fascinating and interesting products. But if they don't understand why things are happening, I don't think they'll be successful. And right now. everything I see is that they they're sort of still reacting to things, but they don't really understand what's happening in the market. Because I think if they if they did, they would take a bit of a different strategy and approach. And also, I think it's again, both those isolations within within Microsoft and Google really depend on how good that hardware team is. So to be honest with you, a lot of Google's potential is predicated on, you know, their ability to get really, really good a list hardware employees, and most of those guys aren't going to Google. They're going somewhere else. So that's where I think you know you gotta look at the team they're building and, and they'll be judged on, on many of their products going forward. But I, I think again I'm I'm giving them slightly the benefit of the doubt just because I do understand why where they're coming from and why they're doing it. I don't expect again the Pixel to sell in any magnificent volumes like we see, even Samsung's high end and obviously not not Apple's. And I'm not sure they really ever will. But I'm not entirely sold. That's Google's. Goal. I mean, I think they can make a great profitable business within Google that makes some money, turns it into a good revenue stream. When again, they make so little from ads, a $5 billion, a $6 billion, whatever, an $8 billion a year additional business in hardware is not a not a bad thing, right? So in fact, arguably, you know, I don't think Google makes much more than five to eight billion a year on, on Android. This hardware unit could easily make a whole lot more money than they do on the Android stuff itself. So that's why I said is, you know, Google's a different type of company, but you know, we'll have to see. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Even then, though, like I said, I don't expect them to sell a ton of these things, but I understand why they're doing
0: it. The competitive advantage for Google and Microsoft is in software and services. I mean, they have made many attempts in the hardware. I also come to appreciate the different philosophies between hardware and software. Hardware demands discipline, detail orientation, longer time, and perfection whereas software demands agility, iterative feedback, and shorter time. And that's also one reason why Google and Microsoft have not been successful at hardware, and Apple is the same way with software as well. And Amazon seems to be really straddled straddle in between both. So there are two questions in this. In observing Microsoft and Google's continuous attempts, do you see that they will break out anytime soon? And the second question is, how will these battles between these companies look like in the future? Do you see them getting in into each other's lane, but... They don't seem to be getting better at what they're doing.
1: Well, I mean, so there's a lot in there. I mean, I I guess I would say I would not expect Google or Microsoft's hardware businesses to really ever be anything like Apple's in terms of revenue and scale. So I think there's advantages that that just Apple's going to have for some point in time that, that will keep their hardware and proprietary software strategies as them just kind of the dominant share leader. In profits and volume in in the high end, you know I do think that Google and Microsoft will do okay by the basis of they'll make decent money, but I don't I don't expect those to be huge huge volumes. Now, again, you bring up a point about so what does that mean then for for services really right because software is sort of on par. It, it's really a services question. You know again I, I think you've got two different approaches right. Microsoft when you say services is actually an enterprise services company, not necessarily a consumer company in terms of of where their volume is. And then Android is arguably a little bit more of a a consumer services company than they are an enterprise services company. And then you kind of got Apple, who's trying to do both, some enterprise services, some consumer services, but everybody kind of knocks their cloud stuff. It seems to me that those things will sort of all remotely stay the same. Apple will get a little bit better in services. Microsoft will get a little bit better in hardware. Google will get better in hardware. The thing that separate from that is uh, what role does AR and VR in some degree play into where these three companies kind of look and go forward? And I think both Apple and Google have sort of shown that. For Google AR and VR are somehow built around Android, probably more mobile than anything else for Microsoft. It's built around Windows and Windows Holographic and the HoloLens stuff and the, the ecosystem they're trying to build around that. They're both sort of signaling, you know, we're going in this direction. We've got a platform. One's holographic, one's more built on mobile, but there's still some parallels that can take place in there. And we don't really know where Apple's going in there yet. It's, it's still really early. But I think when you look at where we are in these cycles, I mean, we're kind of waiting for what the next big hardware cycle is. The coming off mobile and then PC, like we just had one of the greatest runs in hardware and sort of delivering computers to the masses we've ever seen. Something will take place that builds on top of that. I'm not sure we'll really ever see that kind of scale again in terms of of absolute volume. But the next big cycle could be around AR and VR. And so that's where I think you're kind of seeing some fresh ground be broken, a lot more questions around who's best positioned to win, what's the technology going to be, what's the platform, how is software developed. But I'm more kind of interested in that bit because, you know, like I said, services, everybody is kind of going to get a little bit better. If Microsoft and Google's hardware will get better. So most of that's settled. And I don't don't think we're going to rock the boat much in any way, shape or form. I think where it's fresh is kind of where this next kind of ecosystem platform and technology cycle might be. And and that's really where, you know, we kind of land AR and VR seems to be the thing that that makes the most sense. And so now we'll we'll be analyzing how these three companies approach that for the next,
0: you know, eight, 10 years, whatever that cycle could be. So here lies my other question as well. Google and Microsoft have not spent any efforts in the supply chain and distribution similar to the Asian OEMs, your Huawei, your Oppo, your Samsung. How can their hardware efforts succeed? Because you need a lot of distribution to sell these hardware as well.
1: Well, I mean, again, that's where I I take the stance that I'm not sure they're trying to do the same things that, that those companies are doing. You know, again, and I think it's the evidence has been on the wall for some time. Those companies that you just mentioned, you know, are not selling in volume many phones over 300 US dollars. Now, I have no idea if Google intends to go down in price. My gut says they probably will not if they do, then yeah, then they're certainly saying, hey, we want to compete against, you know, those companies that sell three hundred dollar phones. But I'm not sure that's that's the the tack they want to take. And in the same way that Microsoft's not trying to really actually compete with Dell and HP in the five to six hundred dollar range where they all sell the vast majority of their their PCs. I think there's a very different approach from Google there. Now, I do think they clearly want more distribution. I mean, they're advertising this product like crazy here in the U.S., and I'm not sure how much from in other markets, but they're spending a lot of money on advertising. So they certainly want the U.S. market, which, again, is really between Samsung and Apple. So so they're trying to gain some share there. They can get distribution on different carriers. That's just a time game. How, again, how deep they want to go down that against the Chinese OEMs, I'm, I'm really not sure. I just don't think they're they're playing that game. But, you know, there's also some really s- sustainability questions I have for pretty much everybody other than Huawei m- making smartphones in that area. Because selling $300 or lower, you know, smartphones at razor-thin margins is that's the only thing you're going to do that's not a sustainable strategy. So you really got to have a longer-term business plan and roadmap beyond that. And I'm not sure what that is and who their partners are. And is it still Android? Is it something else? I mean, just huge unanswered questions for those companies. So I'm not even sure all those companies are are even going to be around much longer. I mean, Huawei's got China behind them. So that that one will stay around for a long time. But those who don't, like they're dealing with some pretty unsustainable strategies that they're going to need to work out. So, again, I think it makes sense if you understand that Google might lose a fair amount of their Android partners who just go out of business because they can't make money and don't have a truly good global strategy to make money and build a business, it makes sense, you know, that they're going to try to fill some gaps that they lose as, as people can't make money. So you know, again, Android is just a fascinating thing unto itself. It's so much unlike Windows in terms of the opportunity it creates for its partners. But that to me is is still a dynamic that we're going to have to see play out. And that's going to take a few years. But I think Google's hedging a lot of bets with Pixel. And so I think there's
0: diversity in where they can go with that strategy. Just one question before we will go and take a break. So since the Apple and Microsoft events, many tech pundits claim that Microsoft is more innovative than Apple. From your perspective, is that true or merely just because of the way how they position the product presentations. And the other thing is that one shift in the recent Apple and Microsoft event is the pricing is actually going up for the PCs. Is it just the business strategy with PCs becoming trucks?
1: So, yeah. So to the last point, I mean, we've been tracking an ASP increase in consumer markets, not enterprise markets, but consumer markets for some time, which I think is entirely logical because, you know, if, if you value That machine, you work on it, you create on it, you know you need it, you hold on to it for six to seven years and you know that you're going to spend money, you know, you're going to upspend on the technology because, again, you don't want to replace it every three years. And that's what happens if you get a a really cheap PC. So consumers know they value them, they want to spend money, and so they're spending more because they know they're going to hold on to this for a long time. So that's happening. That's working. That makes sense. That's why we've continued to see high-end windows and max gain share as an overall percentage of shipments, no question. So so that's happening, which is why it makes sense. It's The market's moving that direction, so it makes sense that several of these OEMs do also. Now, what's going on sort of more broadly from an innovation standpoint? I mean, I, I think you got two things. You know, firstly, I think you had A market reacting to some really great stuff that's happening with Microsoft. And I think it's key that they're embracing this kind of non crusty business Microsoft and starting to get into all this interesting look at all this stuff you can create, you know, and really focusing on true. Creativity as a form of productivity, that productivity is not just Excel and Word and smartphone management and MDM and yada, 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 yada. So these are all really, really good things coming out of Microsoft. And I think what you're seeing in the market is a sentiment that we didn't really have that high of expectations, right, from Microsoft the last few years. And so almost anything they do that's cool is going to be like, this is amazing, you know, look what's happening in Microsoft, because we we just didn't have that high of expectations from them. So they're far outpacing our expectations and doing some really interesting stuff. So people are going to, by human nature, kind of react from that. This is cool. This is neat. This company's got a fresh vibe. So it feels really interesting. And then you kind of have Apple where you've really got these ridiculous expectations, and they're never going to meet those expectations by the, the press and those and pundits, etc. And so You kind of have this imbalance where nothing they do will sort of be viewed as innovative or interesting. But because those expectations are high, that's the reason. I think they both did interesting stuff. I don't think any of it's truly, you know, quote unquote, innovative. Again, they're taking an approach that says people use these machines, they get things done, and we're creating things, we're creating products that will help you get your job done easier, faster, more enjoyably whatever. And they're taking two different approaches to that and I think that's fine. I think people get entirely confused with this proposition like Apple should just put a put a touchscreen on the Mac. Like I don't think those folks have really used a Windows PC with touch that much. All the evidence honestly is that that people who do have touch-based PCs use it a small fraction of the time as an input mechanism. So it's hard to argue that that's really becoming the predominant way in which we should use a computer is is, is by touching, you know, the screen. So... I get kind of both sides of this. I think there's there's a disconnect with reality that people who think, you know, any one company is doing more in- innovative stuff than the other. I think it's fresh thinking from Microsoft, which is exciting. We're seeing them kind of become a new type of Microsoft, which is fantastic. You know, I actually made the point, and, and I think this is true and I'll probably write about it, that, you know, I really do feel like we've got a better future in front of us. From a, from a technology standpoint if Apple and Microsoft are competing versus if Google and Apple are competing. So I like to see these companies really mix it up and push each other because I really don't think Google's pushed Apple in any sort of way from an innovation standpoint. So so that's all interesting. And I think that's happening. But I I think, again, you got to look at these things in isolated corners. And the reason people got all excited is because, you know, and Microsoft did, did some awesome stuff, but we didn't really have those expectations of them. And then, you know, you got Apple who you constantly have unmet expectations for because those expectations are too high. So it's just a
0: disconnect in the reality of what's happening in the marketplace. And that comes to the end of the first part which we talk about October surprises and we'll definitely come back with part two.